Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been talking about Hebrews, going through Hebrews, and today we're on Hebrews, the latter part of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 15 through 29. And what we're calling is, it says, see to it. This is a whole passage about see to it. In other words, keep close watch over something and make sure it happens. It's kind of like Captain Picard saying, make it so, right? See to it that this happens. But it also has this idea of literally observe it, watch it, kind of kind of watch closely to see that this happens, make sure this is the case. And he's actually gonna give us a whole series of see to it's in these last 15 verses here in, in Hebrews 12. And so just to remind us a little bit of where we've been, let's recap so that we can see what is leading to this, this, this application, the see to it application. He's calling mostly the community to see certain things. And so just very, very quickly, let's remember where we've been because it's been 12 chapters, some really important messages, and it's so dense. There's been so much that any recap is going to be only marginally it's going to miss a lot. Okay. So it's really just a reminder for those of you who've already been through this. So he says, number one, he says that the, remember the Hebrews were wrestling with the fact of if we embrace the gospel and this Messiah, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah to embrace him, do we have to somehow declare the old covenant bad or invalid? Or are we betraying that somehow? Are we saying that that was bad? If we embrace the gospel is good. And the author of Hebrews, one of the things he's been saying throughout is, no, the law is good and God did not change. The God who gave you the law in the Old Testament is the same God who has given us the gospel and it's not a change. And it isn't that the law was bad and now all of a sudden they're asking you to let it go. The law is good. You don't have to worry about that. That isn't what we're asking from you, he says. But he goes on to say, well, part of the reason the law was good was that it was good not as the end, but as a tutorial. It was good as the beginning. He says the elementary teachings about the Messiah, for example. It was good as the elementary teachings, but now we're moving into something more. In fact, the law was always pointing towards these things. That's what makes it good. It was good and then it pointed to the gospel, just like a sign that leads to Santa Fe is good because it points to Santa Fe. And so he's saying it was good, it was not bad, because it is exactly in keeping with this eternal plan. And that's the third point he makes, is that what we're asking, what we're looking at today in the new covenant is not a change of God or believing the law was bad or believing the law went away. But what we're looking at is that the law was fulfilled, that the law was hinting at the gospel to come. And now that Messiah has come, it's been fulfilled. And so it's not bad, it's good, but it led here. And this is what we need to embrace. And it doesn't make any sense to hold on to the signposts when we've now arrived at our destination. And, and that this, this Messiah who came is now our high priest and our sacrifice. That all the things we learned about priests and sacrifice were really pointing to Jesus, pointing to who he is and what he does for us. And what he's done for us as our Messiah is he's answered God's promises with a yes. And that's the other big thing he's talked about throughout the book of Hebrews is that from the very beginning, during all the covenants, at any time, it's always been about God making promises and asking us to believe him. That as God makes promises, those who believe him enter into a sort of rest because God's promises are completed. God promises to complete things, to do things. And when you believe him, you enter into that rest where you don't have to make it so yourself, where you don't have to make it happen yourself. And that this is the ultimate fulfillment of that. 
that the promised land in the past, the Sabbath in the past, that all of it was also hints and foreshadowings, important in their own right, but also hints and foreshadowings leading us to the understanding that the gospel is God's yes to all the promises he's made and that our faith is what he asks us. He just asks us to believe him when he gives us these promises and accept the rest that he offers us. So that's been the messages all the way through. And now that we're there and we're all wanting to, to enter into the rest and believe in God, he says, this being the case, I want you to see to it these things. So as a community, here's the things you're obligated to, right? Sort of in some ways, the purposes and the obligations of the community under the new covenant are what he's about to unveil. And so he starts right off the bat. He says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. It's a really important verse. And it's a really interesting phrase because I think we confuse it with a lot of things. We, some of us may remember that Paul says, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we may confuse that with this, but that's a very different statement. Falling short of the grace of God is not the same as falling short of the standards of God or the glory of God, not living up to something. Grace, by definition, isn't something you can measure up to. It isn't something you can live up to. Grace is an unmerited favor from God. It's part of his love and his desire to give to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we create. It's not something we, we become worthy of. By its very definition, it's none of those things. So how do you fall short of something that you can't measure up to in the first place, that isn't even measurable in that sense. And I think, you know, the NIV used to translate this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And I think that's the sense here. Fall short also works. The idea is this, the grace of God is so big, it's calling so much. It is such a huge thing that God is, is giving us this grace and this calling us righteous and, and, and approving of us and giving us all of this through the gospel. The grace is so big but if you settle, if you decide that, that that isn't it, if you don't embrace the grace, if you're like, well, I hear that it's big, but I don't think it's big enough. I think what I need to do is work hard. I think what I need to do is follow the law. I think what I need to do is, is make sure that I am doing these things so that God will approve of me. That's falling short of the grace of God. That's saying, I need to, I need to do it myself. And that is not believing the promises of God and entering the rest of God. That is working yourself to try to earn your place. And his point is that is settling. So far from saying, see to it that people work harder, he's saying, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no one falls short of the grace of God by returning to the law, by returning to thinking they have to make themselves approved. And this is equally relevant today because it is so easy to replace the grace of God or try to with other things, to think, to not, to not be willing to fully embrace it. Sometimes people will say to me, we got to be careful not to get too much grace, right? Because then we lose holiness. Like it's a balancing scale. That's nonsense. There's never anything about God which you can have too much of, right? We're going to see that at the end here even. You can't have too much of God. And God's grace and holiness are not in a balance. Like if you have too much grace, then you don't have as much holiness. Or too much holiness, then you don't have as much grace. It's our misunderstanding that makes that seem to be the case. The truth is, you can never have too much grace of God. It's an integral part of God's character. And it is all that we have. It is everything that we're dependent upon. So he's saying here to the community, see to it that, that you are a community of grace, that everybody is, is pushed towards that, embraces that. I just think this is so important. We have, to, we have to fight for that. We have to fight to continually remember and remind ourselves and remind each other 
that we are here by the grace of God. Self-righteousness fights against the grace of God. Pride fights against the grace of God. Anxiety fights against the grace of God. Insecurity fights against the grace of God. The world fights against the grace of God. Everywhere we go, certain teachings that come to us fight against the grace of God. And it's so easy to succumb to that and to forget that our dependence is on the righteousness of God. He is what makes us righteous. It is his gift to us that makes us righteous. There's not thing one that we do to make that so. What we do make so is that we remember that we are here by the grace of God. See to it, he says, that no one misses it. You gotta fight for it. It's interesting. God has so captured my, my heart with the idea of grace early in my ministry that I have spent much of my ministry, all of it really, preaching about the grace of God over and over. And that's so helpful for me because I know that if I did not hear myself preaching it, if I did not study it, if I did not constantly be out there pushing it all the time, I myself would, would move from that position. And it's interesting, I have friends, good friends, been with me for years and they move on to other ministries. And I can tell in conversations we have with them, sometimes I'll just say, hey, are you still immersed in the grace of God? Is it true that you're still seeing that it is God's righteousness and not your own? Because I feel like you're feeling a need to perform for God in order for him to love you. And they'll say, yeah, you know what? I hadn't really noticed it, but yeah, I, I don't hear that as much, or we don't, I don't fight for that as much. And I just have to remind them, and we, have to, we all need that. That's the point, that our job as a community is not to push each other away from the grace of God or to minimize it, to say, well, too much grace is bad. People will be licentious. We'll get into that another day. I don't think that's what scripture or experience teaches us. But that we need to fight for the grace of God. We need to stand firm, as Paul says, and don't let anybody take that freedom from you. You are loved because God is a God who loves. You are righteous because the blood of Christ made you righteous. You have been given this because God has chosen to give it to you. Not because you got his attention and earned it from him and did anything amazing. He thinks you're amazing because he's a God who's able to see that value in his creation. He loves you because he's a God who's able to love. And this is what's really, I think, so important that we fight, that we see to it that no one misses the grace of God. But he goes on, he says this, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So here's an interesting thing. This is one sentence. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up. And I don't think these are disconnected ideas. I think they're connected. In fact, I think they're to some degree cause and effect, but the difficulty is I don't know which is cause and which is effect. In other words, I can see both ways, right? Here, here's the point. If you're missing, if you're not really embracing the grace of God, if you aren't accepting that God loves you, whether you deserve it or not, if you think that God is still holding you to this, this standard of performance that you aren't meeting, if you're still thinking, I got to do better before God's going to really love me or pay attention to me, then is it any wonder that you treat other people the same way? That you hold them to standards that they can't meet, that you hold them to standards that, that, that you're constantly kind of holding a grudge at and you're being resentful. In other words, if you're not seeing the grace of God in your life, it's easy to not be gracious to others. On the other hand, if you insist on being graceless to other people and holding grudges and being bitter, then it also makes it hard to see the grace of God because you have to let go of that in order to be able to accept that God might be that way for you. See, I don't know which is cause and which is effect, but what I do think is that it's really hard to believe one while holding on to the opposite of the other. It's hard to continue to grasp that God is so gracious and loving to you when you don't deserve it if you're not willing to be that way with other people. And I think it's equally hard to 
to continue to hold on to grudges if you're really grasping how good God is. And if you're being gracious to others, it makes it easier for you to see the grace of God. I just think there is a connection and interplay here, and that's what he's saying. Be a community of grace. See to it that no root of bitterness grows up. And it might not just be bitterness of revenge and grudges. I think that could be it. But it could also just be bitterness at your own life, right? If you don't believe that God is gracious to you, if you're not accepting that God is is working in your life because he loves you, because he has things for you. If you think that somehow he's working against you or he's ignoring you, then that, again, makes you bitter about life. And so what he's saying is keep an eye on it, right? See to it. Watch over everyone in the community. Watch over each other. And when you say hints that somebody is moving away from the grace of God, that they're trying to earn their approval with God, that they're trying to earn their own place of righteousness with God, when they're trying to to, to prove that they're better than other people. When you see them moving to the religion and law instead of to the grace of God, man, see to it they don't miss it. Don't let them go there. Likewise, if you see them being graceless with each other, if there's bitterness and grudges and resentment and a, and a harshness and we're not giving each other grace, man, don't let that stand either because these affect each other. And the most important thing is that we don't miss the grace of God. So in your communities, in your households, in your churches, in your in your, in your uh, circles of influence, in your oikos, in your household, are you a community of grace? And are you doing your part to see to it that no one misses the grace of God? Are you being gracious to other people? And are you regularly reminding people of the graciousness of God? And I think that's really in a lot of ways what he's going to say over and over through the rest of these see to it's. But that's where we start. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no bitter root grows up because that can defile the entire community. It's interesting. It only takes a few people justifying a lack of grace for the whole community to begin to justify a lack of grace. And as we justify a lack of grace with each other, I can guarantee you, you're going to find in that community a lack of conviction about the grace of God towards themselves. They do follow each other. And so I think this is just see to it that no one misses the grace of God by either our interactions with each other or just make sure we're continuing to teach it. There's Paul talks about the fact that that it is the grace of God which teaches us in our communities to say no to worldliness and yes to godliness. And we don't think of grace as a trainer or a teacher or a discipliner, but it is. It's the grace of God that teaches us, which is why it's so important in our churches that we be communities of grace. If we want to learn, if we want to grow, if we want to mature, we got to be communities of grace. That is so much more important than being communities of accountability or being communities of structure or being communities of law or being communities of obedience, or being communities of groupthink. None of those things are as important as being communities of grace, which starts with the grace of God towards us and is reflected in the grace that we hold towards each other. So watch for that, he says. Keep an eye out for it and see to it that nobody misses it and that no bitter root grows up. The lack of grace in a community will defile the entire community. See to it. That doesn't happen. Then it goes on. He has this really interesting thing, which a lot of people are really good with everything I've said. And then we get to the next one and they're like, ah, this is not as important, right? I mean, it, it's here, but surely it's just a side note. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. And it does feel a little bit like, why, why are we here all of a sudden? Isn't this kind of, you know, whatever, plebeian, archaic? Why are we suddenly worried about the morality of things? We're talking about grace. Grace is big. It's huge. It's eternal. What is this about sexual immorality? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. First of all, let me point this out. I think it's interesting. A lot of people react to the idea of sexual immorality still being a thing that's important to God. They kind of don't believe that because 
I understand, some of you say to me, I've been raised in communities where sexual immorality became the sin. It was the only sin we ever talked about, and we winked at all these other sins, things like racism and, and social injustice and oppression and greed and slander, and, and there were all these other things that we just kind of let go, you know, even abuse, we just kind of let it go, and we didn't worry about it, and, but we focused on sexual immorality, and so now kind of the response is, so that, that can be right, right? But that's just a, an old, archaic, oppressive idea that we should be sexually moral. It's a way of keeping people oppressed. But I think the problem is that it's to, to go back and recognize that pay, perhaps many people of my generation understated other sins and, and sort of prioritized this sin above all others, that that was a mistake and a problem it is equally a problem to do the opposite, to understate this sin in favor of other sins. See, here's what's an interesting point. Paul often gives lists of sins, right? And when he does, he's always really strong about them. He's like, these are bad things, right? And he says, don't do this or this or this or this. What's interesting is I, I challenge you, go to any of those lists of sins. And for everybody I know, as they read through the list, there's always things that catch their eye, that they're like, yes, that is so bad. I see that, that's a bad sin. But there's other things that they're like, well, is that really that bad? I mean, that's not on the same level. And I'm not talking about the impact that a sin has on people. I think sins can have different impacts on people. I think murder has a different impact on somebody than slander does. But it doesn't mean that they aren't both sins. And what's interesting is in those lists that Paul gives, we often see things like slander and lying and gossip, favoritism, and they take place right alongside sexual immorality and adultery and murder and greed. We see them all together in the list. And we all have a tendency to pick our favorite sins, the things that we think are really important, and sort of wink at the things that maybe we don't think are as important, and maybe it's because we're guilty of them. And maybe it's not, but I'm just saying that it is easy to pick and choose, to cherry pick. And so I think it's important not to do that. I think it's important to recognize that, that, that there are reasons that God tells us that racism and social injustice and oppression and, and greed are bad. And there are reasons that he tells us that sexual immorality is bad. And it's not just because God has this sort of arbitrary standard and he likes to control us. It's because God knows they're bad for us. They're bad for the community and they're bad for us. And I think that applies to a lot of things. But why in this specific situation is sexual immorality mentioned? We've been talking about grace and bitter roots, that all makes sense. Why all of a sudden does he throw in this idea of sexually immoral? And I actually think it is very connected. And I think there's a reason he throws it in, and that reason is given to us in the rest of the verse. It's always a good idea not to stop too early. I just wanted to make a point before I did, but let's go on and read the rest of the sentence because he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So here's what's interesting. The example he gives here of being godless like Esau is not a sexual immorality example, not as we would think of it. It's not him engaging in, in some kind of sexual activity. And yet he pairs it here with sexual immorality, much as we see the grace of God and bitterness being paired. There is a connection here between these two. And here's what I think the connection is. So the, those of you who are not familiar with the story of Esau, here's what it is. Esau's brother is Jacob, and Esau comes home one day and he's very, very hungry. And Jacob has a stew. And Esau is so hungry. He says to Jacob, if I don't eat right now, I'm going to die. And so he's so hungry that what he does is he trades his inheritance. He trades his birthrights with Jacob for that stew. So what's the birthrights? What does that mean? Well, he's the firstborn. And he's supposed to get the lion's share of the inheritance. When dad dies, he's going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. And he gives that up. He gives up all of the property and all of the inheritance and all these blessings and all of these 
these foods and, and, and crops and herds that could make him lots of stews in the future. He gives all of that up for one stew right now, one taste, he's so hungry. And the point is there's a complete lack of perspective here from Esau. I don't care how hungry he is, he's not gonna die. And, and he could have eaten something else. And, and again, we can certainly discuss, and the scripture does, that Jacob is unfair to sort of make this deal with him. Jacob should have just given him the food. That is not forgotten in scripture. But what is also pointed out in scripture is that Esau here has no perspective. He is in this moment where he's willing to give up something much bigger for something more immediate that is so tiny in comparison. His, his, his physical craving seems so important to him that he loses all perspective about things that are so much bigger. And this is what I think is the point of sexual immorality. See, it's not that eating food is wrong, and it's not that sex is wrong. God ordained it, and in context, in the right places, it has a beautiful and important set of purposes, of which pleasure is among them. But what is interesting is that these pointing out that the godlessness of Esau came down to not having any kind of bigger perspective on his life, that he saw himself at that moment as only only a physical creature. And he saw his entire life as wrapped up in fulfilling that one physical need, that, it, that that was everything. And the problem is a complete lack of perspective. And I think that the point here in what we're seeing here in terms of not missing the grace of God is it's the same message. Don't miss the grace of God. See to it in your community that people don't become so wrapped up in the idea that all they are is physical beings and all they need to do is satisfy their physical beings to be happy. Help them see that's short term. That is short range. That is short sighted. That's not the reality. We are much more than our physical bodies. Uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare, an atheist, famously said that there are only two things which are satisfying in life, sex and going to the bathroom. And clearly the point is, if she really said that, and that's the quote anyway, but the point is that, that we're physical beings, and so the most satisfying things are these physical things, that there really isn't anything transcendent, there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing more than that. And I think the point is, what's wrong with sexual immorality is it treats us as if we're just bodies. It treats us as if what we just need that next meal or we're gonna die. And it lets go of this incredible inheritance of all these spiritual things, of this relationship with God, of this incredible position with God. It misses the grace of God in the sense that it boils everything down to these very material, physical things. And we're so much more than that. I think it's interesting in our culture right now that another issue is that, that we have come to identify our value and our worth with so many things connected to sexual identity and sexual pleasure and fulfillment. There are so many, and I won't go into detail, but there are so many ways right now that we seem to identify that is how we know our value and our worth. And that is such a shame because the gospel tells us that we are worth so much more than that. We're worth so much more than our, our physical appearance. We're worth so much more than our physical actions. We are worth so much more than our physical cravings. Those are all just superficial parts of us. But the grace of God speaks to a worth which is so much greater than that. So see to it that no one misses the grace of God by settling, this time not for the works of the law, settling not this time for the actions that make us right, settling this time not for relationships of bitterness, but settling for the idea that we're just physical people, that there is nothing transcendent, that it all just comes down to meeting the most immediate need at, the mo at this moment, and there's nothing else to look forward to, there's nothing else to see. It's a shame because the grace of God speaks of something so much more valuable 
powerful in who we are, that we're all spiritual people, we're eternal people, and that our inheritance is so much greater than that stew that we think is everything to us right this moment. And I think that's why it's in this position. I think that's why he recognizes within the community, this is something that affects our understanding of the grace of God. So he says all this. He says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no bitter root grows up, right? That, that, no one, that we're gracious to each other. See to it that no one is sexually immoral, that we don't treat each other just as physical bodies for our own exploitation, for our own pleasure. See to it that we recognize that we're all spiritual beings and there's so much more value, something so much bigger in that. See to it that we're not like Esau, short-sighted and pinning everything on this one moment, but recognizing that life is so much more than that that there's something so much more valuable in the grace of God. And he says, as communities, see all this. And then he gives this really interesting illustration. I love this illustration. Let me just read it to you. And we'll talk about it. He says this, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they cannot bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He's referring to Mount Sinai. This is a real thing. This is not, he's not saying this is a bad mountain. He's not saying this has never been a mountain. He's, he's pointing them back to an experience they know from their legacy. It's that moment when Moses receives the, the moment, it's actually many days, when Moses receives the commandments and the law from God, when God reveals himself to the Israelites. And it's a terrifying moment. The mountain is literally covered with thunder and lightning and clouds and the mountain shakes. And they are indeed told, if even one of your animals touches the mountain, they, will, they must be stoned to death because God is bigger than this. And even Moses, who had this incredible relationship with God, he trembles with fear as he encounters God on this mountain. And, and, and it's, it's part of what we've talked about, this, this picture that God encouraged, because it's real, of his being other, of his being terrifying, of his being so much bigger than anything that they could imagine. That, that this is part of it. This is the legacy they grew up with. He's not saying this is a wrong perspective of God, but he is going to tell us it's an incomplete perspective of God. And he's saying, this is the mountain you came to where you saw this terrifying nature. You saw the physical mountain, the physical darkness, the physical gloom, and it physically shook. It was a mountain that could be touched. And you, and it, but it was, all, it was all there to reflect a thing about God. But God was so much more than that and is more than that. And that's what he goes on to say. But you have come to Mount Zion, Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel speak? The blood of Abel is the story when, when Cain murders Abel, and then God says the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. What did it speak? It spoke of judgment. It spoke that you're going to be judged, Cain, because of the evil deeds you did. But he's saying the word of Jesus speaks of, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It speaks a word of grace. It speaks, and, and I love this, that even in this it says that God is the judge of all. But this time, the God, the judge of all, he continues to be judged, just as he was on Mount Sinai. But now the judge of all judges that you are made righteous. Now the judge of all is the judge to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
He judges you perfect. He judges you approved. He says you've been made righteous. I just love the pictures of these two. To me, as he describes them, you can really see one is dark and one is bright. That's what I see, right? One is just dark and foreboding and the other is a big party with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful celebration. They're both big. They're both amazing. They both have awe to them, but one is just one you can approach. You're not afraid to touch the mountain. You are invited to the mountain. The blood of Jesus speaks a better a better word here than the blood of Abel. And again, I think the point is not God used to be this way and now he's this way. No, the point is God is both of these. He is terrifying. He is big. He is other. But he's also the judge who has made you righteous. And he's the judge who has provided the mediator and he's provided the blood of Jesus so that the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. And he speaks to you a better word. I love that too. They didn't even want to hear God, right? Because what he was speaking was so scary to them. But now he says it's a trumpet blast, not of judgment, but of a party. And it's joyful, joyful assembly of angels. And I think the point is not, not which of these is the real God. They're both the real God. But the point is, if you only see the Mount Sinai God, what have you done? You've missed the grace of God. You've missed that this incredible, holy, perfect judge of all mankind has chosen to extend the grace of God to you so that now his judgment is that the spirits of the righteous can be made perfect and have been made perfect. It's that you're missing the grace of God if all you see is Mount Sinai. But you've been invited to this, this kingdom now, which is not scary, which is not trembling. Think of how many times the author of Hebrews has said, come with, with confidence to the throne of grace. When you see the grace of God, you can come to God with confidence. And if you understand this is who God is, it's going to help you in your relationships with other people. If you understand this is who God is, it's going to help you in that short-sighted desire for physical pleasure when there's something much more transcendent available for you. Even the physical pleasures of sex in the proper context can be transcendent when you understand them in the context of who God actually is. The point is the same. Direct people to the grace of God, right? God is holy and gracious. Don't let them miss the grace of God. If you only see that one mountain, you're missing the grace of God. So how can you point people to the right mountain? These are the see to it's that we're obligated to as a community. See to it that we present this mountain. In our communities, which mountain do we reflect? Are we reflecting a mountain of joyful assembly of angels? Are we reflecting a mountain where people are, are feeling like their names are written in heaven? We get to heaven, God isn't going to say, what are you doing here? He's going to say, there you are, your name's written right there, come on in. Are we speaking a better message to people than the blood of Abel? Are we presenting to them? Are we showing them this beautiful, glorious, brightly lit, celebratory party of a mountain? Because that's what he's telling our community to do. That's the obligation. See to it that no one could miss the grace of God. Present it so big that they see the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful celebration. That's the call. And it's amazing to me and very interesting to me that on the heels of this, he now moves from a communal obligation to a personal one. He's been talking about what we do as communities, what we need to see to it as communities. Now he's about to speak individually to people. And he says this, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. I love this because think back to that picture. Why did they refuse God who spoke from the mountain? They begged him to stop speaking because all he was speaking was bad news. All he was speaking was things they couldn't stand. They were true, but they were judgment and they were bad news and they were scary. 
But why is he saying to us, see you do not refuse him who speaks? Because God isn't speaking bad news. He's speaking good news. He's speaking to you of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Man, when you refuse the gospel, when you turn from it, I don't, I don't care if it's FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't care if it's pride. I don't care if it's anxiety. I don't care if it's sort of a, an intellectual stumbling block. I don't care if it's that you're afraid of what you're going to have to let go of. The fact is, none of that matters. I don't even care if it's that you've been wounded and hurt by other churches and other Christians. It's not about them. It's about the God who speaks to you a good message, who wants you to listen because what he's telling you is good news. And when you refuse him who speaks the good news, what's left? What is left? That's what the author says. He says, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? We're not talking about physical repercussions here. We're talking about the question of you living the life that he's created you to live beyond the, the physical and the short term. He's calling you to something so much bigger. Don't refuse him. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. That's complicated, but keep listening. He clarifies. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Do not refuse him who speaks because he's speaking to you of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Boy, everything can be shaken. Our relationships with other people can be shaken. They can become bitter and sour. Our relationships with other people can be shaken. We can, we can cling to that meal, that stew, that sexual encounter. We can cling to that physical gratification, thinking it's going to give us long-term happiness, and it doesn't, because it's going to be shaken. But what can't be shaken is the grace of God. What can't be shaken is the spiritual kingdom. What can't be shaken is this kingdom that goes beyond simply the, the physical manifestations and shadows that we have right now. That cannot be shaken. And so he says, don't refuse him who speaks. He's offering you the good news of something stable and solid in the grace of God. Push people towards it. Show them this mountain. Make sure they don't miss it. And then he says personally to you, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. Nothing else matters. No excuse or justification matters. He's offering you great news. Don't refuse it. Don't turn from it. He says we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. See to it that you are grateful for an unshakable kingdom. I don't mean this in the terms of see to it that you're grateful, you ungrateful wretch. No, I mean see to it that you grasp that, that you look into what it means that God is offering us an unshakable kingdom, an eternal inheritance, which so, so much bigger than all these other things that we get bent out of shape about. He's offering you an eternal kingdom, which is unshakable. So, See to it that you grasp that. Don't miss the grace of God. And learn to worship with gratitude and reverence for this holy and gracious God. I love that he goes on and closes with this, for our God is a consuming fire. I love that because it, it really is both pictures in both mountains, right? He is a consuming fire, and it's a scary one. 
on Mount Sinai, but he think he's pointing out here on Mount Zion, it's also not scary. Think about the other story of Moses, where Moses goes to the burning bush and it says it's being burned, but it wasn't being consumed. And I understand we're using the same word consumed, but I, I, let me schmooze it just a little bit. It was burning, but it wasn't being destroyed. Somehow it was actually thriving in that fire. That's the kind of consuming fire God is. When we are consumed by God, it doesn't destroy us. It doesn't make us less than. In fact, we thrive in that. It makes us stand out with glory. That burning bush got Moses' attention because it was the glory of God. He said, let me go see this strange thing in front of me, right? Because it was burning, but it wasn't being destroyed. See, you can't have too much of God. I, I know that you probably have known people in your life who seem to be consumed by religion, theology, ideology, church, other people. And in that being consumed, it was bad for them. And it may have been bad for people around them. Please do not confuse that with being consumed by God. When you're consumed by God, your life is revealed. When you're consumed by God, you begin to finally understand how much more you are than the beef stew. You begin to understand how much more you are than the approval of men. You begin to understand the grace of God. And when you're consumed by the grace of God, you become alive and you shine and you bring glory to the world. And you don't become less you. You become, for the first time, more you. You see how much more you are than you ever thought you were. Because the grace of God speaks to that value. And it speaks to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. Don't be afraid to be consumed by God. Nothing else should consume you. Because nothing else will bring you life. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say in Hebrews 12. See to it that we always hold out the grace of God because that is all we've got and it's all we need. And see to it individually that we don't refuse that grace when he speaks it to us with the good word and the good message and the good news. And that's what Hebrews 12 is about. So hopefully I'll be feeling better tomorrow and I will see you next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.